Thank you for listening to this teaching from Kingdom Discipleship. In our world today, mental health is certainly one of the great problems of our time. The good news is, like with everything else, Jesus is the answer. Many millions of people struggle with depression and anxiety and sadness and fear, but in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, all of these things can eventually be remedied. Let's open our Bible now to 1 Kings chapter 19 and look at the incredible provision we have in Jesus even over our mental health. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I hope and pray that you are blessed this day. My name is Dustin Turner, and I've been a part of Kingdom Discipleship Ministries for around 10 years. And I've been blessed with an opportunity to speak to you today about something that I have been and continue to be very convicted over, and that is biblical mental health. Now, the reason that I use the word biblical there is because I, along with many other uh, Christian counselors and Christian therapists and even Christian mental health coaches around the world, believe there is only one way for us to be healed. There's only one way that we can find ourselves being pulled out of the darkness and released from the pain and the sorrow that seems to plague us day to day, moment by moment. And that is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you don't misunderstand me or mishear me. I truly believe there is value in therapists and counselors, whether they're Christian or not. I believe that it is important for us to have people in our lives that we can go to that give us a close to unbiased opinion that helps us even overcome some of the traumatic, painful events of our past to give us guidance uh, and assistance and being able to make decisions over the difficulties of our present and even help us gain strengths and be able to overcome the fears of our future. I believe that therapists and counselors are great resources for us to use. I myself have a therapist and I value my therapist very much for the help that they are able to provide me through my struggle with mental illness. I also believe that there's genuine and powerful value in medication. I believe that it is a very good resource to use at times when things get really bad. It's really good at being able to scrape a few layers off the top of the deep pit that we find ourselves in, uh, where we're just overwhelmed by the darkness and the depth of the pain that we feel. And I also believe that there's there's value in medication where it's able to take the edge off of sort of the, the mental blade that seems to pierce our broken spirit and our broken hearts on a regular basis. And medication helps kind of slowly take some of those pieces out where it doesn't quite hurt as much. But really, even through those wonderful, valuable tools and resources that we can use, there is only one way for us to gain genuine healing, whether that be through a long-term perspective where we are healed forever and never struggle with it again, or even a moment-by-moment -moment daily basis. And that is truly the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Psalms chapter 34, 17 through 18 says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. How often 
do you feel crushed in spirit? How often do you find yourself waking up in bed and feel like there is no reason for you to do anything, that you have no will to live or to act or to do? Well, the Bible tells us that he saves us, those of us who feel crushed in spirit. How often do you feel brokenhearted? Often. For myself specifically, I often feel brokenhearted and know that uh, there are times in my life where sometimes I just don't feel loved. I don't feel like there's anybody in there who really cares about me. And I have to learn that this is obviously untrue because the Lord is close to me. And so we need to recall and remember that the scripture tells us that he, he hears us. He knows that we're hurting and he has a heart and a desire to truly heal us. Uh, and free us from that pain that we're going through. And that could be from a moment by moment basis where in that moment he heals us from it so that we can go on about our day. And sometimes uh, he can even heal us long-term uh, to where we never have to struggle with this again. We can look at Jeremiah 17, 14. It says, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved for you are the one I praise. I love this verse here because uh, it tells us that we will be healed, not might, not could, but we will. If as long as we put our focus on him, because it says the key words here are we, uh, you are the one I praise. The more we focus on God, the father, the more we focus on Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and growing in relationship with God, our father, we will be healed. We will be saved again in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17, it says, but I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. We could see in this, this verse here that God has that heart. It's another reassurance that he does desire to heal us. He does desire to save us. He wants uh, to be in our lives. He wants to free us from this pain. The beautiful part is, is that there are times where, where Jesus does come into our lives and he does use you know, prescribed medication and therapists or counselors to heal us, that he can use a mixture of those things to bless us in a way that we can truly be healed and saved from our, our struggles and our pains. And then there are even times where he doesn't use those at all, and he can save us and heal us primarily through himself. Now, my hope for the teaching today is in the title, Biblical Mental Health and Wholeness in Jesus Christ understanding that Jesus Christ does have that heart to heal us. He has that heart to save us, and he truly wants to give us genuinely good, positive mental health from a biblical perspective and true, genuine wholeness in his name. He wants us to feel aligned with him and to grow in relationship with him. And so in the message today, I want to provide a few tools that I've learned through my life by digging into the Word of God, share a little bit of my testimony with you and provide a little bit of hope, a little glimmer of hope, uh, and maybe even some actionable things that we can do in our lives to help us overcome some of those struggles that we might have. Now, let me be perfectly clear here. Everything that I'm about to tell you, all of the methods uh, that I have learned and the Lord has blessed me with, all of the scriptures the Lord has provided uh, us to help us through these mental illness and disorders, none of these things will have 
any impact whatsoever, zero weight, zero impact on your life if you do not first have Jesus as your personal savior and have Jesus in your heart. It will mean nothing to you. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. He tells us that if we seek to have a relationship with God the Father, we seek to be saved, we seek to, to be freed from our mental illness and our struggles, there is only one way and one truth and one life in which we go through, and that's Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. The reason we need Jesus to be the way, truth, and the life, the reason we need him to be the gateway to God the Father is because we have sinned against God. We are sinners and we fall short of his glory. That is not hyperbole. We are sinners and we need a savior to step into our lives and to pay that price of that sin in order for us to have a relationship with our father. That is biblical truth. John 1.12 tells us, yet to all who receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10.13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here, the scriptures tell us that if we call on the name of the Lord and we cry out to his name and we invite him into our lives and ask him to be the Lord of our lives and to be our God and to forgive us our sins because we have fallen short of the glory of God, then we will be saved and we will be adopted into the kingdom of God. We will become children of God. Now, if you're unsure, if you have Christ in your life, and if you are saved, the process is actually really simple. The first thing that it requires is a genuine and intentional heart to want Christ in your life, to really desire to be saved from your sin. You have to come from a place deep within you where you need to understand that you are a sinner and you need a savior and Jesus is that answer and the only answer to that. And you have to really want to invite him into your heart. If you do desire that and you do have a genuine heart and, and intentionally want to invite him into your life, then the next step is really straightforward and simple. You simply need to call on the name of the Lord and invite him into your life and pray a prayer like this. We will add this prayer in the description if you want to pray this prayer. The words themselves aren't as important, but this is a beautiful prayer that shows us how we should talk to our God and invite him into our lives. So bow your head before God and pray this prayer. Lord Jesus. I confess that I am a sinful person. I confess that I am hopeless without you. I believe you lived a perfect life for me and died a perfect death for me. And I believe you 
are alive and risen. I ask you now, Lord Jesus, to come into my heart, to be the Lord of my life, and to bring me to heaven when I die. I place all my faith, trust, and confidence in you alone, Lord Jesus, to save me and to be my everlasting Lord and God. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, and help me to live each day of my life in love and devotion to you. Heavenly Father, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you come before Christ with that prayer and intentionally and genuinely desire for him to be in your heart, I promise you and guarantee that he will hear you and he will save you. But it does require that you genuinely and intentionally want him in your life. About three years ago, I was living in North Kansas with my family, my wife of nearly 11 years and my three sons. And I was offered a job uh, to uh, relocate to the middle of Nebraska uh, and to be a software engineer up there. Now, due to our financial situation at the time, um, the only way that was going to work in the beginning is if I went there first, left my family behind, uh, and then started saving up money so that we can get a, a home there in Nebraska and then eventually move my family up there. Now, as I'd been working there in Nebraska for a few months, um, one evening, um, as many couples probably experienced this, my wife and I had uh, a pretty heated argument and discussion on the phone. I remember at the end of that, I spoke to my wife and I said, um, you know, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. I've been struggling through our marriage for many years. We've been trying to get back on our feet and, and nothing seemed to work out. We were arguing all the time. Um, and, and I really didn't feel like I was of any benefit to her or my children anymore emotionally. And so I just told her, I just don't, I don't know if I can do this anymore. So I go to work the next day. And, and as I'm going about my day, uh, my wife calls me uh, and she basically says, you know, if, if that's really how you felt last night, um, I'm going to go ahead and pack up all of our stuff and I'm going to move uh, back down to Texas with my family. Uh, and I'm going to take the boys with me and I'm going to file for divorce as soon as possible. The thing that shocked me the most wasn't that my wife of 11 years wanted to divorce me. It wasn't even that I wasn't going to be a part of my kids' lives anymore. The thing that shocked me and that gave me a sense of disgust about myself was that in that moment when she spoke those words, I felt relieved. I felt a sigh of relief force itself out of my body, out of my mouth, and I was immediately after disgusted that through all of that, that was my immediate response, that I was relieved that I wasn't going to have to, quote unquote, deal with this anymore. I knew something was wrong. So I began to 
cry out to the Lord and ask him to reveal to me what was truly wrong with me. Not just that I sighed with relief uh, that I was going to get a divorce, but that I just didn't seem to have any more hope. I couldn't even enjoy simple things in my life anymore. Um, and, and things just didn't seem to be going very well. And so uh, my wife for many years had, had basically begged and begged me to go to a, a therapist to figure out what was going on. And so after that terrible phone call, I made that effort and uh, ended up going before a therapist. And then I uh, was referred to a psychiatrist where I received a diagnosis. And for the first time in my life, I understood that there was definitely something that was off. I was diagnosed with chronic, debilitating clinical depression. Now, the short version of that is chronic just means that my depression happens uh, often and on a regular basis, not necessarily uh, consistently on a time schedule, but it does happen often. Um, and it is something that I should consider uh, through my struggles with depression. Uh, and debilitating means that sometimes when the depression gets really bad, uh, it can get so bad that I, I feel, genuinely feel like I've lost my will uh, to do simple things, to even get up out of bed. Um, and so at times it has felt so bad that I feel strapped uh, to the bed, uh, which obviously isn't true. But mentally, I lose my will to even get out of bed. And so through that process of understanding my depression and being a believer of many years, I asked myself, how is it possible that if Jesus truly loves us, as the word of God says, how is it possible that the Bible seems to be empty of anything resembling depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder. And then a thought occurred to me, um, well, genius, that's because those words didn't exist 2000 years ago. So I began this journey digging into the word of God with the hopes of finding out what God, the Father, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit have to say about mental illness and mental disorders. Uh, Jesus being who he says he is, and in the word of God, what he says about himself is truth. He must have something to say about it because he is a God of love and he's a God of wisdom. Uh, and so Jesus being who he is, truly understands what we're going through. So I needed to dig into the word to try to find some truth on what Jesus would say to us who have mental illness and mental disorders. So I found myself at 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, before we dig into that, let me give you a little summary of 1 Kings 18. So we're presented with the prophet of God, Elijah, uh, who is a prophet at a very difficult time in Israel's history. And so the first thing that's happening is that the entire countryside is experiencing a severe drought and a famine. And also the, the Israelites are at this particular time turning their faith away from God and towards Baal, a false God. And so Elijah uh, is on top of Mount Carmel 
he goes out and he basically tells the people that he, he wants all the Israelites and uh, 450 prophets of Baal to meet him on Mount Carmel. And so uh, through this time, he basically uh, rebukes them for turning away from God the Father. And, and he tells the prophets of Baal that he's going to put this Baal to test. So uh, he tells the prophets of Baal to set up an altar and to provide two oxen, uh, one for their God and one for the true God. And that uh, they were going to set up the altar for sacrifice, but they were not allowed to light a fire underneath the altar. The intention was that the prophets of Baal would pray to Baal and ask Baal uh, to light the fire by his strength alone uh, to show that he is truly God. And that uh, Elijah was going to do the exact same thing. And so, of course, uh, the prophets of Baal, they set up the altar, they cut up their oxen, and uh, they, don't, they do not put a fire underneath it. And they begin to pray fervently to Baal, asking him to come down uh, and light this altar. Now, I highly encourage you to read 1 Kings chapter 18 in its entirety. It is an incredibly uh, powerful story. Uh, it's an amazing miracle that, that uh, the God the Father truly does make happen for the Israelites. It brings the Israelites to an incredible scene of repentance. Um, but in the moment that the, the prophets are there, they are praying and praying and, and dancing around and trying to get Baal's attention to no avail. When it's Elijah's turn to set this up, he does things just a little bit different. So he basically tells some servants to go down and fill up four jars of water and cover the entire altar with water. Now, uh, traditionally, they also build a trench where they put seed in it around the altar it's for that to burn up as well. And so uh, they pour water all over the altar and it fills up the trench as well. And then he tells them to go down and do it a second time and then a third time and then Elijah prays to God in this beautiful uh, prayer, asking the Lord to light this altar. And, and it's an incredible scene because God doesn't just light the, the altar. He sends fire from heaven, the Bible says, and it ignites this altar and it licks up all of the water, including the water in the trench. Uh, and in that moment, the Israelites, uh, you know, they, they bow before God and they repent of all that they've done. God has revealed himself to them. And then at the end of that, Elijah tells the people to grab hold of the 450 prophets of Baal, do not let them escape, and then they put them to death. So we find ourselves here at 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll be reading today from verses 1 through 8. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, that is, the prophets that he had put to death. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. 
I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. How many times have you found yourself in that situation where you have lost the will to live? How many times have you asked God even to take your own life out of fear and out of anxiety and out of pain? Well, I can speak for myself and say that it has been often for me. Unfortunately, more often than I would like to admit, I have found myself in situations where I just didn't know if I had the will to live anymore. When I got the call and I knew I was getting a divorce, I was in that place. I felt like I was no good to God. I was no good to my father in heaven, to Jesus who died for my sins. I, I didn't even feel like I was worthy of anything. I wasn't a good father. I wasn't a good husband. All of these things convinced me that I was no better than all the other people that I've let down. I was no better than all the people who've let me down. Just as Elijah is here and he says, I'm no better than my ancestors. That he just wants God to end his life. Now, something I want to make clear is that in this situation, uh, it is important that I explain that there's a difference between a situational depression and a clinical depression. I think that this scripture applies to both. But in this situation for Elijah, we need to make sure we understand that this story is about a situational thing that, that Elijah is going through. And we want to make sure that when we read through this scripture and we apply it to our lives, even those who do or do not have clinical depression, that we look at it from the, the right perspective and the right light. Elijah uh, is a prophet of God and he is going through a situational depression. You know, so we cannot say that he is struggling in the same way. But I do believe that this, this beautiful story is going to give us an opportunity to, to reflect on some things in our lives and give us some tools that we can use to get through those seasons in our lives. And so we see Elijah start off by praying to God, uh, asking God to take his life. So Elijah does pray out of obedience here. He does pray to God the Father. He prays, I have had enough, Lord. I have had enough. And he asked the Lord to take his life. Now, clearly, out of obedience, he is praying to the Lord. He's not just going to end his own life. But 
we need to understand that this behavior is still irrational. Not only should we not be asking God to do that, but we clearly uh, shouldn't be trying to undermine ourselves and shame ourselves as, as Elijah did here. He stands before God and he prays to God and he says, I am no better than my ancestors. Well, not many of his ancestors were facilitators in an incredible miracle that he just accomplished just before the story. Many of his ancestors did not do some of the other miracles that he's, that he's done and, and said some of the things and done some of the things that he will continue to do. And so we need to understand that sometimes in our lives we come to this situation where we become overwhelmed with our depression, whether that be clinical or situational. We become overwhelmed with seasons and scenarios in our lives where we think and do things irrationally. And that's a difficult and dangerous place to be at times. And so it is important for us to go to God as Elijah did. We need to pray and ask God to enter into our lives, but we need to work on understanding that in order for us to first truly overcome the struggles that we have through depression, anxiety, and many other struggles, we need to first invite Jesus into the situation. Elijah does invite the Lord into this. He says, I've had enough, Lord. He invites him into it through a prayer. Uh, and then he, he goes after the prayer and he lays underneath the bush, uh, basically hoping that it's all over. The one thing to note here is that uh, James chapter 5, 17 in the Amplified Bible says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, with the same physical, mental, and spiritual limitations and shortcomings. So Elijah is a prophet of God, but he's still a man. He's still human. He's still very, very capable of sin. Um, we, you know, again, uh, Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. That includes Elijah. Now, Elijah does have a genuine relationship with the Lord. He does have a stronger relationship with, with God the Father than many of us do. And so, you know, he, he has a different type of relationship with God than many of us might have. And Elijah is coming before God based entirely upon who he is in Jesus, who he is in his relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so uh, when we come before the Lord and we invite him into those situations, we need to uh, invite the Lord into it based on our relationship with him. So now we understand that Elijah, being man, being a sinful human being, is still, through his relationship with the Father, is still reaching out to him, still praying through obedience and asking the Lord, inviting the Lord into his situation. And, and through that season, through that moment of, of fear and anxiety and even some level of situational depression, Elijah is struggling with his frailty. He's struggling with this idea that he can't take it anymore. The Lord sends an angel to Elijah. The angel comes and he touches him and he says, arise 
and eats. This interaction seems funny to me. Angels are presented throughout the Bible doing these miraculous miracles and events. And we know based on those stories that through the power of God, they have tremendous power and ability. And so when I read the story, at first I was like, you know, doesn't the angel have the power to just make Elijah's belly full? The reality is, of course, uh, if it is God's will, uh, the angel very much has the power uh, to make Elijah's belly full. The angel even has the power and the ability to wipe out Jezebel and all of uh, her, her entourage that are trying to come find Elijah. The angel even has the ability to come before Elijah and just eradicate all of his enemies, uh, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he comes before Elijah, he touches him, and he tells him something simple, even seemingly mundane, as to just get up and eat. Arise and eat. I remember one of my first few interactions with my therapist. And as I was speaking with him, I remember telling him, you know, uh, some of the, the things that I've been struggling with. And, you know, I was having a difficult time processing all of the stress that I was going through and, and the anxiety that I felt. And so he asked me a question. He said, you know, what are some of the things that you do to help try to process some of those stress? Just give me a couple of examples of things you try to do. And so I told him, I said, you know, like a lot of people, you know, I uh, sometimes I just it gets bad enough where I find myself uh, going into a closet and closing the door and sitting in the dark alone so that I can just get through and process all those things. Um, and, and I told him, I was like, I even um, have a spot in my closet, uh, in the middle of the closet, specifically where nothing sits in the floor so that it could fit me perfectly so I can sit right there. He looked at me and he said, uh, do you not understand that that's not normal behavior? Are you under the impression that that is the correct way to handle your depression? He says, as a matter of fact, I really want you to consider and, and try to answer this. How many times has that actually helped you? I was taken back. I was in shock. It was almost instant that the answer came to me. Uh, not one time. To my knowledge, it's never helped me once. And so I began to realize that a lot of the struggles that I were going through was very irrational behavior. I was doing things that I thought was normal, I thought was okay, and it clearly was not. That I was sub subjecting myself to isolation, uh, that I uh, would remove myself, not just from people, but from God too. I would sit in that closet trying to remove myself from everything so that I can, quote unquote, process my stress. There were times that I would find myself waking up in bed 
and I still struggle with this sometimes on occasion, but I find myself waking up in bed uh, where I just lack the ability and the will to get out of bed, to, to go about my day, to work, uh, to function, uh, to go anywhere, to do anything. I just wake up at times, like I said before, I feel like I'm strapped to the bed and that uh, I just don't have the mental or the physical strength to do anything. And so I started to reflect over the scripture, understanding that our God would have us accomplish seemingly mundane and simple tasks in obedience to him so that he can prepare us for the work that needs to be done. So check this out. So the first time the angel comes to, to Elijah, touches him, and he says, arise and eat. He does that very thing. He eats and he drinks, and then he goes right back to sleep. The second time, the angel touches him and he tells him again, arise and eat. But this time he adds, for the journey is too much for you. It almost seems like in, in our churches today, we want the story to be arise, be full, and you're good now. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. I got you covered. I got your back. Your enemies are eradicated. Go out and do, you know, feed thousands, heal people, do all these miraculous things. We want the story to have like sort of this beautiful, happy ending. But that's not what the angel does here. As a matter of fact, the angel tells him, uh, it's not going to get any better. <laughs> he says, arise and eat for the journey is too much for you. He's telling him, you're going to have so much more work to do. It then tells us that he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights to reach Horeb, the mountain of God. That's a, that's a big deal. And so Elijah is presented with an opportunity to do a seemingly mundane task that simply helps uh, sustain him for his basic physical survival to prepare him for the work that needs to be done. We need to understand that there are times in your life where when you do not believe that you can accomplish anything, that you that you don't have the will or the power to be able to do uh, anything good in your life, first and foremost, rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name. Do that right now. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 4.13, um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All things through Christ who gives me strength. And so Elijah here, he's going to arise and eat through his relationship with God, his father. And that's going to give him the strength that he needs to do the journey that it will be too much for him. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that look like? Well, I know for me in the times where I've been lying in bed and I do not feel like I have the strength to get out of bed, to do the normal things of my day. Those three words actively go through my mind. Arise and eat. Arise 
and obey. Because that's essentially what Elijah's doing here. He's arising and he's obeying the will of God. He's eating. God's will for him right now is to arise and put some food in your stomach. Build up your strength because there is work to be done. God's will for him is to do something seemingly mundane and actually very simple. The only effort that Elijah has to give in this moment is to get up and put food in his mouth and then to wash it down with water. That's it. That's his only job in this moment. And so when I've been there and I'm laying down, those words come through my my mind. And so I, I start to pray and I invite the Lord into it. And I say, Lord, I am struggling. I am having a difficult time. I'm, I'm not sure I can get up today. I know that you would have me arise and obey you. You would have me arise and do something very simple uh, today so that I may be able to go about my day and do what you would have me do on this day. And so I pray about it and I invite the Lord into it. And most times what that could mean for me is that I pray and I invite the Lord into the situation and then I choose to get out of bed and to make my bed. Now, in those times, that uh, debilitating feeling, it, like the depression will try to convince me that it wants to be inactive for the entirety of the day. There have been times where I felt like, you know, my brain's telling me, you know what, let's just lay down all day in bed and, and do nothing for the entirety of the day. Um, let's be as inactive as possible because um, I just want to wallow in this pain and this trauma and this, this uh, darkness that I feel myself in. Sometimes, and for the longest time, the majority of the times when I would get out of bed and make the bed, I would find myself laying down on the couch for the entirety of the day. Now, through that season, you know, for the longest time, I would feel worse than I did because I would feel like I lost the whole day, that I, I lost this tremendous battle, that I was a failure, uh, that I was incapable of anything worth doing. And then the Lord revealed to me that I did actually arise and make my bed. I did get up and do something simple. And when my brain told me and my, my depression was trying to convince me to stay in bed, I, in fact, did not do that. I laid on the couch for the entirety of the day. Now, it may not seem like much at first, but when you take those small little victories like that and you add them up over uh, a few months and a few years, you begin to see the everlasting effect that it has on your spirit and in your life. And then over time, I began to invite the Lord more and more into the situation and, and trying to put more tasks, small, more manageable tasks on top of that seemingly simple thing of arising and making my bed. And eventually became something like arising, making my bed, and then brushing my teeth. And then, um, and, and then it became even more spiritual because I made it an activity of getting up after praying and inviting the Lord into that depression, uh, making my bed, 
then brushing my teeth, and then I would get some coffee, and then I would open up my Bible, and I would spend time in the Word of God. I would spend time with Jesus. I would spend time with the Father uh, and, and invite Him into my day, and then learn more about Him, dig into His Word, and, and use the Word of God to feed me spiritually so that I may be restored through His Word. My heart through that whole process was to not just overcome that depression. You know, Oswald Chambers says, we must take the first step to arise and obey in the inspiration of God. If, however, we do something simply to overcome our depression, we will only deepen it. So we need to make sure that when we arise and when we obey or eat or make our bed, making the bed isn't the crucial part. It's arising with the intention of growing with Jesus, with the intention of giving the Holy Spirit room to work. Uh, you have to come before him and present things to the Holy Spirit in order for that depression to be eradicated that day or even ever in your life. If we lay in bed and we stay there, we are not going to be effective. We are not going to be productive in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus cannot use us if we're just laying around, if we're just accepting our fate and hoping to die. We're just laying there. We must get up. There's work to be done. Jesus has work for us to do. And so we must truly seek that out to do it. Oswald Chambers goes on to say, but when the spirit of God leads us instinctively to do something, the moment we do it, the depression is gone. As soon as we arise and obey, we enter a higher plane of life. The moment we look at those things in our lives of just arising and obeying, arising, making our bed, arising, reading a chapter in the word of God, arising, spending time in prayer or worship or both, arising and brushing our teeth, arising and going from one spot to the next, doing something in the name of Jesus, we will find that depression goes away. It doesn't always feel like it's an instant deal. In the past, when I've done this, I've come before God. I've arisen out of bed. You know, I've made the bed. I find myself on the couch and the depression still is there. But as I reflect back on those times, I realize that the more I did it, the less of a hold the depression had on me at the time. So maybe I still had depression, but it wasn't as strong or as uh, heavy as it was before. It wasn't as tiresome and, and, and hopeless as it quite was just a few moments before. And so we, we know that the more we depend on God, the more we can truly overcome our depression. The more we depend on Jesus, the more we depend on the Father in heaven, and the more do we depend on the Holy Spirit and their mighty power, we can overcome this depression. And this isn't just from a clinical depression perspective. This concerns 
any depression, situational or clinical, anytime you find yourself overwhelmed by the struggles of your life, by spending time in the word of God, by spending time praying to God, by spending time putting your focus on Jesus, you will find the depression hurts a little less. You will find the anxiety isn't as overwhelming. You'll find the post-traumatic stress that you feel is not as burdensome. The more we turn our eyes to Jesus, the more we turn our focus and give the Holy Spirit something to work with, the more we will find the depression becoming less of an obstacle in our lives. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We must test ourselves by arising and obeying God. We must invite the Lord into our situation. You know, the first thing, the moment you feel like you've either woken up or, you know, it just came out of the blue and you start feeling that depression sink in and start to try to overwhelm you. In that moment, we must intentionally and diligently go before God and invite him into the situation. You know, the Lord will never force his will upon us. We must invite him in. We must choose him to do the work in us so that that depression can go away. Now, the reality is, is that to some degree, depression is prideful behavior because prideful behavior is where we become uh, overwhelmed and focused on ourselves. It isn't always narcissistic behavior where we think too highly of ourselves. It could even be prideful behavior where we think too low of ourselves, where we think that we are the worst of the worst. I personally struggle with something called self-deprecation where I am quite literally my own worst critic. I think very poorly of myself at times in, in a way that is unhealthy and that Jesus would never have me think. Jesus would have us understand where we are, but uh, we should never live our lives through false humility. That is to think low of ourselves in a negative, debilitating way. We need to understand that pride in that way could be narcissistic, but it also can be self-deprecating. Uh, and so depression quite literally takes your own thoughts and focuses them entirely on yourself. You become consumed with your pain and your struggle and your trauma and your darkness, and you are unable to see any light because all you can see is in. When we are depressed, it is in that moment that we are not focused on God. So the more we focus our attention on Jesus, on growing in relationship with him, inviting him into our situations, you know, allowing him to wrap us in his arms, the more we do it, the more the depression will go away because our focus turns away from the inside and turns outward to him. It turns away from the darkness and looks to the light that is Jesus. It looks to the way. It looks to God, our Father, in that deep, focused relationship. We are no longer consumed by our own thoughts, our own depression. 
Look at what 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When you struggle with depressions, I 100% guarantee you that your depression is allowing your thoughts to capture you. That your mental illness and your mental disorder, your your depression, your anxiety, your post-traumatic stress, any of these things, when you are focused on them, they allow your thoughts to completely not just capture you, but consume you. You become so overwhelmed by the depression, by the anxiety, that you cannot see beyond the dark room you find yourself in. You cannot see the light that Christ is diligently waving in front of you because you cannot see beyond yourself. When you're focused on your depression, on your anxiety, Jesus is trying to get your attention. He is trying to get you to turn your focus on him, away from yourself, away from your depression, and on him. He is diligently trying to get you to arise and obey. So we must actively choose to go before Jesus and invite him into our situation, invite him into our depression. We must take those thoughts captive and then turn them to Christ. We must demolish the arguments and the pretension that we have inside our own minds. And we must turn them to God. We must turn them to Jesus and invite him into the situation and turn our focus on him. And I promise you will be healed. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for this amazing and very powerful scripture. I love the story in 1 Kings, Lord, uh, in 19, where, where you, you show us the situational depression that, that Elijah is going through, Lord, and, and he is struggling. He is in fear of his life. He is, he is struggling deeply uh, with just wanting to give up. But Lord, you come before him in a miraculous way. And you remind him that the focus must be on you. It must be on our obedience to you. So Lord, we just, we ask that whoever is listening to this message, Lord, whoever has come to this part of the message, may they truly know and understand that by your power and your grace and your mercy, you can and you desire to heal us that you are right there beside us. That you are close to us. Psalms, again, Psalms 34, 17 and 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. You are with us, Lord. You are close to us. And so, Lord, we just ask that you continually uh, cover us uh, with your mercy and your grace. And Lord, may we, come before you and turn our attention to you. May we take our mind off of our own thoughts 
off of our own depression and anxiety, our own mental illness and disorders, and when we turn those thoughts to you. The more we rely on your strength and your ability, the more we will be healed, the more we will be saved from ourselves. May we truly and genuinely and intentionally come before you today. May everyone listening today pray to you, Almighty God, and ask you to heal us in a profound and substantial way. And all that you require of us is to arise and obey. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the love of the God the Father, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.